Well, good morning, everyone. Glad that you're here today. And uh, you know, it's like going to be 70 degrees, and so you came to church, so that's good. Um, I'm sure there are some that chose not to today. May God have mercy on their souls. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Hey, just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been lied to, disappointed, gossiped about, betrayed, or hurt by someone else? Just by a show of hands? Okay. Now, how many of you on the flip side have ever lied to, disappointed, gossiped, betrayed, or hurt someone else? Okay. Uh, Pretty even. In the first celebration, there were like a whole bunch of hands that were like, yeah, someone did that. And then when I said the second one, how about you did it? There were a lot less hands. And uh, what's interesting to me is that it's far easier to remember when someone has hurt you than when it is to remember that you hurt someone else. Last week, we talked about forgiving people who hurt us. And we had two big suitcases up here talking about don't bring baggage into the rest of your week. Go ahead and forgive someone. And people wrote down a name of someone, and they came up and they forgave that person. And if you didn't do that this week and you just wrote down the name, then that didn't really do much, okay? You have to forgive them. So I would encourage you that if you haven't done that, that you pick up the phone, you send them a note, you sit down with them to do that. Now today, though, what I want to talk about is what do you do when you've hurt somebody else and you need to seek their forgiveness? Someone that you hurt, someone that you wronged. One day Jesus was teaching a message on the side of a mountain. It was his most famous uh, teaching called the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Mountainside. And this whole sermon... Uh, teaching is about relationships and the importance of relationships. And he uh, says these words right before the text that we're going to get to today. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, do not even become angry. And he's like still in this relational zone of how you should relate with people. When in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 5, he says this, if you're standing before the altar in the temple, in other words, if you're in the parking lot, contemporary uh, way of saying it, you're in the parking lot, you're getting ready to come to church, you're just getting ready to walk in. If you're standing before the altar in the temple and you're going to give an offering to God, he says, And suddenly you remember someone has something against you. And what do you do? And Jesus says this. He says, stop and go to the person. He says, leave your offering there beside the altar. And then he says, go first and make it right with that person. Now, this word go in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, has this sense of like intensity that you will do anything 
to be able to make this right. That if you have to travel across country, if you have to work hard, if you have to overcome some obstacles, he says whatever you need to do, you should go and seek forgiveness from the person that you've wronged. If you've hurt someone's feelings, if you've said something that has caused conflict, you should immediately go first and make it right. And he says, go first and do what? What's it say then? He says, go first and be, what's the word? Reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift to God. He says, that's what you need to do. Now, this is very interesting to me because this is the only place in Scripture in which Jesus says there's a different priority in Scripture. Most of Scripture says that the highest priority is to worship God. Whatever you do, worship God. But here, Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not about worshiping God. It's about you going to reconcile and restore the relationship. In other words, you can't come in here and sing some Jesus songs and raise your hand, or if you're more charismatic, you know you get your little groove going down, or whatever it is that you do when you come in here to worship, he says, I don't want to see that. If you're not in a right, reconciled relationship with the people in your lives. In other words, in some respects, he's like, your worship doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't mean anything unless you have that right. I saw this played out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I went and took my uh, two girls to a daddy-daughter dance. And we went to this dance. Yeah, they are cute. They look like their mother, thank God, you know. I mean, it's, it's good. And uh, so we go to this daddy-daughter dance. And this was Shiloh. The, Shiloh is the one uh, on your right. And uh, it was Shiloh's first dance. I'd taken Jordan the first two years before that. But this was Shiloh's first dance. And the first half of the dance went really well because uh, it was all fast-paced songs and they had raffles and different things. So we're like all dancing together and dancing in circles, dancing with other dads. You know, I'm like sweating, perspiring, about ready to pass out. Um, But we're dancing, we're dancing. Finally, then it gets to a slow song. Now, in my mind, this is what I think is going to happen. I'm going to take both of their little hands, we're going to form this nice little circle, and we'll just kind of dance around together as uh, dad and daughter. Well, we start doing that, and all of a sudden, Shiloh's like, we're not having that. And she drops her sister's hand. She goes in between my hand and Jordan's hand, my oldest daughter, and she does a karate chop right in the middle of it, turns around, grabs both of my hands, puts her feet on my toes, and she's like, huh. And she starts dancing with me. Now, I think it's pretty cute at this point, and I'm like, man, this is what it means to be needed. You know what I mean? And and like to feel like you've been wanted uh, by someone. And so we're dancing, everything's going well. And I look over to the side, and Jordan is not happy. She is not happy at all. And pretty soon, she's on my toes, Shiloh and I are dancing, And Jordan swoops in, and she shoves her sister aside, and she starts dancing with me all by herself. Well, at that moment, it was like Jesus on the side of that mountain, and I come to him, I'm like, no, 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 no. 
I was like, Shiloh, that was a good karate chop, but you should not do that to your sister. You need to apologize to her. And Jordan, you kind of, you know, swooped in and you, you know, shoved her aside. That, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. You need to apologize to her. And no one's going to dance with daddy until this relationship gets right. And so the two of them kind of go off to a corner. You can see they're not happy with each other. But they both want to dance with daddy. And so they make it right. And for the rest of the night, they shared back and forth on the slow song. Now here's the point, folks. All of us sometimes come with worship to God. And we think that because we're God's child, he should always be grateful that we're worshiping him, however it is. But God says this, if you don't have your relationships right with other people, don't come and worship me. He's like, get that thing done right first. He's like, you want to know the highest priority? Most of the time it is worshiping God. But if you have hurt someone else, if you have offended someone else, if you have wronged someone else, make that thing right first. Get it taken care of. Before you go to church, before you go to small group, before you go to celebrate recovery, before you go to grief share, before you go anywhere to worship me, make those relationships right. Make them right. Now, folks, there's something that takes priority over worshiping of God. And what Jesus says it is, is restoring and reconciling relationships. Now, in this very same chapter, Jesus is talking about relationships. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, he says these words. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, it's interesting what Jesus doesn't say. He does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. You see, there's a real difference between being a peacekeeper and being a peacemaker. And if you want to fill this in, it's in your program, or you can do it on your app. Here's the very first fill-in. And it's this, that peacekeepers often avoid confrontation to keep peace. Peacekeepers often avoid confrontation to keep peace. And yet the reality is, I bet if we did a survey today of a lot of people that are in this gym today, there are a lot of you that are peacekeepers. You'll do anything to keep the peace. You're just like, hey, let's just stop fighting and let's all get along. Let's just pretend like this thing didn't happen. Let's just make sure that everything is okay. Let's just not acknowledge the fact that every time our family gets together, there's all of this tension and issues and all kinds of stuff. Let's just kind of fake it and let's just kind of make it seem like it's all okay. I mean, we know deep down that this relationship is not where it's supposed to be. But I don't want to fight. I don't want there to be obstacles. I don't want to go through a difficult time. Let's just be peacekeepers. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not about peacekeeping. It's about peacemaking. And here's the difference. Peacekeeping avoids confrontation. Peacemakers, though, embrace confrontation to make peace. 
Jesus said, before you offer your gift, go and initiate and try to apologize. Do whatever it takes that you need to do to make for peace. Now, this is what's interesting to me in my own life. I don't have a problem being a peacemaker when it comes to my family. I, uh, with my wife, uh, Jennifer, uh, we do not go to bed before uh, everything is made right. So the Sunday after Easter, it was Saturday night, and I said something that basically was being a jerk, you know. Uh, I have a way of doing that sometimes. And, uh, and we were up till 1.15 in the morning making sure that it was made right before that next Sunday. And with my girls, I always make sure that before they go to bed that things are at peace, things are good. With my parents, I've had to confront them before. There was a, a time in our marriage when we got to around 10 years, and my parents and Jen and I kind of got in a disagreement. We got in an argument, and we had to go to counseling for a period of time to make it right, and we did. I've confronted my siblings, even my in-laws. I remember one time uh, confronting my father-in-law on something, and we had to meet at a, a Panera Bread to be able to make sure that things were right. So when it comes to my family, I don't have an issue having peace being made. But when it comes to the staff on our church, for the first 10 years, I was just a peacekeeper. I would do anything and everything I could just to keep the peace. Even if people were not producing well, even if they weren't very... Uh, faithful in the things that they said they were going to do, I'd be like, oh, it's okay, no, no problem. We'll let this slide. We'll let this slide. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. We'll let it slide. And then one particular day, I'm walking into the office, and uh, Derek, who's our worship leader and does a great job, and then uh, Mikey, who runs all of our communications, who does a great job too, they're in their office, and I walk in, I was like, hey, guys, it's time to go. And Derek pipes out and says, oh, we'll be there in a little bit. And all of a sudden, I don't know if it's my male ego or what, but I was like, no, no, this isn't in a little bit. This is now. I'm not asking your opinion. I'm telling you we're meeting now. And so they walk down the hallway. They come into the office. I'm sure they're like, dude, this is like we've never experienced this before. And I felt so horrible because this is what I realized on that day. For 10 years, I was stuffing everything down, trying to keep peace with everybody on staff, but I wasn't holding them accountable to the things that they were called to do. And so I had to work at that to be able to say, there has to be this kind of accountability. And so over the past two years, I have uh, brought a, a consultant in that has helped to mentor me and be a better peacemaker. I have resources that I've taught. We have, a, as a staff, we're going through leadership development, which is basically about holding one another accountable for the things that they need to be held accountable to. Now, this was what was interesting. Uh, Mikey and Derek were on a team, and uh, the team was basically to oversee getting all of the new uh, backdrop behind us and some of the curtain skirts. And we get to a meeting 
And they've had almost nine months to get this done, and it hadn't been done. And there were some legitimate reasons why. But finally, rather than getting mad or angry, I was like, okay, guys, between now and the next time we meet, what are you going to do to make sure that this thing happens? And all of a sudden, it was a totally different way. I confronted clearly what it was. I said, this is my expectation. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, as you know, the backdrop was up, everything was good to go. They did an awesome job, and everything was wonderful. But if I would have just kept the peace and said, oh, just kind of, don't worry, guys, do whatever you want, it would have never happened. And I realized that for the church to grow and for our staff to grow, it's not about peacekeeping. It's about peacemaking, embracing when you need to confront someone else. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus says that if you're going to be a peacemaker, that there are uh, both an enemy and a friend to peacemaking. Here's the enemy to peacemaking. It is called pride. Let's all say that out loud together, because none of you have it, I know. So I just want to have us say it out loud together. One, two, three, pride. Pride, yeah, pride. Now, don't elbow the person beside you and go, hey, you prideful fool, do you see what he's talking about here? This is why we don't have peace in our house. God is calling you right now. Can't you tell? Don't do that, okay? Folks, you show me any relationship where there is tension in the midst of it. And it's not just one person, but there are two people at fault. And typically, this is what is going through their brain. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not wrong. And even if I am a little bit wrong, I'm not nearly as wrong as they are, so I'm not going to apologize. After they apologize, then I'll apologize, but not before that. Sound familiar? A little bit? Folks, in almost every relational struggle... There is not just one person at fault, but there are two people at fault. I mean, even if the one person is like the biggest massive jerk ever on the face of this earth, if you're in a relationship with them, you're a part of it as well, and you need to own up to whatever your part is. You're not responsible for what the other person does when you try to make it right, but you are responsible for you. That's why the Bible says this, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with, what's the word? Everyone. Who? Everyone. Ah, yeah, you're saying it loud, but do you do it? I mean, when the guy pulls up beside you and you don't go as fast as he wants you to go and he gives you the bird, he's not telling you you're number one, okay? I'm telling you. And when that happens, how do you practice it then? When your neighbor... Uh, doesn't mow their yard or they mow so far away from what the boundary line is and you like are you serious and now i have to deal with that how do you respond are you at peace with everyone your mother your father your brother your sister your kids your boss your crazy one-eyed uncle and how about this one your ex-spouse your ex-spouse he doesn't say, everyone, except your ex-spouse. You can just like, no, no. He says, everyone. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace. In other words, give it all you got. Now, sometimes it doesn't depend upon you. In my life, there are two people in my life over 44 years that I've tried to reconcile with that they chose not to have peace with me. There's nothing more I could do. But this is what happens with the Scripture sometimes. Sometimes we're like, well, I called them and they didn't answer, so I did my part. No. 
Remember this whole intensity that Jesus says, that you go after that and make it right. One of my favorite quotes when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation is from Mother Teresa, and this is what she says. Even if you've only done 1% of the wrong, be the first to apologize for your 1%. So in other words, they might be 99% wrong. You be the first person to apologize for your 1%. Now, let me give a little caution if you're married. If you're married... Don't use percentages when you're trying to apologize. I tried to do that. I first read this quote, and I thought, man, that's good, you know. And one time I went to Jen, I'm like, hey, you know, I want to be the first one because I'm bigger than what the issue is. So I want to be the first one to apologize, and I'm going to apologize for eh, maybe 4% of the fault, and I'm waiting for you to apologize for the 96. Not good, not good, So, uh, so don't do that. Folks, if it's, it's very, very hard for you and I to look in a mirror and see our pride and our sin. And that's why pride is an enemy to peacemaking. Now, the friend of peacemaking is this, humility. Let's all say that word out loud together because you love that word as much as pride, right? On three. One, two, three. Humility. Humility. Humility says, you know what? I do own a part of this. I actually have been wrong, and I'm going to be faithful before God, and I'm going to own up to my part of it. And here's what happens when you put humility before pride. You put the relationship higher than yourself. You put the relationship higher than yourself. And even if you feel like you're right, what you do is you say this. You say, I love this relationship more than I love being right. Some of you probably should write that down. I love this relationship more than I love being right. Because for some of you, you'd rather be right than to have a healthy relationship. And Jesus says that's not the way that it works. Let me give you an example of this very thing. A couple of years ago, I uh, was teaching, and I was going to talk about some illustrations of my mom's side of the family. They're all from uh, Perry County. That's Perry County if you're here. But down there it's Perry County. And uh, Perry County, Kentucky. And uh, I was going to talk about all of her relatives and some of the funny things that I've seen happen at family reunions. And so I vetted this out with my mom and I talked to uh, some of the people on the creative team uh, who I get evaluated by every Tuesday, and said, hey, I'm going to use this word hillbilly, and this is how I'm going to say it, and what do you think? And they're like, oh, yeah, it sounds good, funny. And so I get up here, I share this whole thing. People are laughing, they're taking it, you know, uh, to town, and everything's going well. And then I find out between that time and Tuesday that a person approaches me and says, man, you really offended so-and-so, and they're really, really upset by what you said. I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? Like, do you know how hard it is to find illustrations to even do something? And I talked to a couple other people, and they said it was fine, and this is what they're upset about? Seriously, this is it? And luckily, I had a couple of people go, dude, man, you need to make this right. This this couple who had been uh, there at the very early stages of the life of the church, 
they stopped coming to church. And a week turned into two weeks, and it went on further. And so finally I picked up the phone, and I called this guy. And this guy's one of the kindest people you'll know. Great encourager, supporter. And I picked up the phone, and I called him. He's like, yeah. He was not happy with me. And so we sat down, and uh, we talked, and he shared uh, what was going on. And I said, well, I want you to know that I vetted all of that, and I talked to some other people, and they, they thought it was fine. He goes, it wasn't. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, but really, that offended you. It really did. And he's like, yes, it did. And I was just getting ready to kind of defend myself more so when I felt this prompting from the Spirit that said, humble yourself, Chris, and listen. And then he shared this. He said, in the neighborhood that I was raised in, many of the illustrations that you shared were true about those people. And as you spoke, I could see the faces of those different people who were put down and made fun of and called a bunch of dumb hillbillies. And when you said that, it really hurt. Now, at that point, I thought, well, I could still defend myself in doing this, and Satan would love for this guy and myself to be divided. But in the moment, I stopped, and I just said, you know what, I'm sorry. If I would have known this would have created that kind of hurt or that kind of harm, I would have never had the illustration. And I want you to know, I want you to come back to the jar. I I don't want you to leave. Um, We can make this right. And I'm sorry. Will you? Will you forgive me? And about this time, his issues kind of lowered too, and he wasn't as defensive. He goes, of course I forgive you. He goes, I know you would never intentionally try to hurt hurt me or hurt anyone or have an illustration. Of course, I forgive you. And then we prayed together, and our friendship has remained intact. He was at the first celebration today, and he just came up to me. I gave him a hug. He's like, I know. I know. Now, why did that situation turn out the way that it did? Because two people decided to humble themselves to honor the other person. And they put the relationship above their desire to want to win the argument. Folks, how much could God work in your heart, your individual heart, if you put humility above your pride every single time? How much could God do in my life and do so much more if I chose each day to put humility above my pride? So, God says, hey, peacekeeping is good, but it's not great. It's not about peacekeeping, but it's about being a peacemaker. Now, for the rest of our time, what I want to do is I want us to look at five ways that you can apologize with integrity. Five ways that you can apologize with integrity. Because you realize, right, that there are right ways and there are wrong ways to apologize, right? For example, uh, let's say that today someone gets convicted, maybe they did something to you, someone in your family, someone you brought, and they get ready to apologize to you. Don't do this. Well, you didn't do number three. You did all these, but you didn't do number three, and it sounds like the jerk you are because you didn't do number three. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. 
They try to apologize, accept it. Also, if you're trying to apologize, never do this. You know, if I did anything to hurt you, I'm sorry. What's that about? That's not an apology. That's a cop-out. Oh, if I did anything to... Well, of course you hurt them or they wouldn't be mad at you. It's a cop-out. Or don't ever say this. You know, I'm sorry that you feel the way that you feel, but, you know, sometimes you are just a little bit sensitive and quit being a big baby and don't whine about it, you know? True story. Last, uh, this Friday, I'm teaching on this today. I'm on the phone with my wife. I don't even know what the issue was. She probably couldn't tell you either. But she's kind of being sensitive about it. I'm feeling stressed about some stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I can't handle you being so sensitive because in a few years we're going to have teenagers. And I can't handle three of them in the house together. (laughs) Not good. Not good. And so... (laughs) I realized, jerk, you know what I mean? Like, I looked in the rearview mirror. I'm like, jerk, that's who, that's you. And so I pick up the phone, I call her back, and I'm, she doesn't answer. So I'm like, oh, man. Well, her phone died. It wasn't that she was mad, or at least that's what she said. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I believe her most of the time. And, uh, but anyways, uh, she, I called her back, and she's like, yeah. And I said, hey, I want to apologize, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh. So we got it all worked out. But there's a right way, folks, and there's a wrong way to apologize. And you have to be careful on how you do that. So for the rest of our time, I want us to talk about five ways to do that. First way is this. Admit to specific actions and attitudes. You've got to be specific about it if you're going to apologize. You say, I am sorry for, and then you name whatever that thing is. I'm really sorry that I yelled at you. I'm sorry that I lied about you. It's embarrassing. I know I shouldn't have done that, but I did. I I told a lie about you. I'm sorry. I didn't call you, and I told you I was going to call you, and I didn't. I'm sorry. I told you I was going to be home at a certain time, and I wasn't. I'm not going to try to make excuses about that. I'm just sorry. I'm going to be specific. Folks, being very specific about your apology is important. Now, some people are sitting there right now, and they're like, but I don't have anything to apologize for. I don't. Well, some people, you need to apologize for not doing anything. You ever had apologies like this? I'm sorry that I wasn't there to protect you. You went through something, and I'm sorry that I wasn't there. I should have been there to protect you. I'm sorry that I worked so much of my life in your uh, formative years as a child, and I wasn't there for you. I wasn't caring for your needs. I'm sorry that I didn't embrace the relationship. I neglected it. I'm sorry that I never gave you any affection. I never let you know that I loved you. I never gave you a hug. I never said, I'm for you. I'm sorry for that. So you apologize specifically both the actions and your attitude. Secondly, don't make excuses. Whatever you do, don't make excuses. I've seen this a gazillion times. A guy's on the internet, he gets on a porn site, his wife's already to bed. The wife checks all of the addresses of what has been on the computer, and she's got him busted because he's looking at porn. And she goes and she confronts him about it, and then this is what he says. Well, you know, if the bedroom was heated up a little bit more, I wouldn't have to do this. What? 
are you talking about? Or, uh, you know, if you met my needs a little bit more, then I wouldn't have to go to these sites to, uh, you know. No, 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 no. Just own it. You know what you are? You're selfish. That's what you are. You're selfish. And you're trapped and you're tricked and you're overwhelmed and you're most upset that you got busted. That's what you're upset about. No excuses. I'm sorry I betrayed you. I shouldn't have done that. You know the reason why I spend all this money? is because you're such a cheapskate and you never let me spend anything. So I went on a spending splurge. No, 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 no. That's not an excuse. That is an excuse. You want to be honest about it and say, hey, I was stupid. I was materialistic. I did all of this. I'm sorry. Here's what happened at my house recently. My youngest daughter, Shiloh, about uh, six weeks ago, she comes up to me, and she looks really sad, and she's on the verge of tears. And she's like, Daddy, you never spend any time with me. You're just working and working and working, and you never take me to ballet. There's like all these tears. I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? What do you mean I haven't taken you to ballet? I've seen the Nutcracker forwards and backwards ten different times every single year, seeing you dance and prance and whatever, and they never have words. I've done it every single time, and there's no words. It's just dance. And I signed up to be your soccer coach every Thursday, every Saturday. I'm doing that with you. I am with you constantly. We have dance worship nights. We're at our house where things are going dance world because of you. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to get some data. I need some spreadsheets. I'm going to show this little six-year-old exactly how much her dad spends with her. And then I started thinking. No matter what I would say, Shiloh still feels the same way. She misses her dad. And I work really, really hard to try to be at home and to be with them. But she misses her dad. And so I set her down. I said, hey, Shy. I said, you know what? Daddy's really sorry. I'm so sorry that I haven't been here to dance with you and I haven't picked you up from ballet. And, and I want you to know that I'm going to change. I want to change. And Shiloh, do you know why I'm doing this? She got this big smile. She goes, because you love me and you love to tickle me and we're dance partners. I was like, exactly, exactly. That's why we do this. Well, this past Tuesday, I had it on my calendar, so I went early to go watch her dance. I walked in, and there's this guy who I know. Usually, if you've ever done dance with your kids before, Women do that all the time. There are very few men that stay in that place very long. I mean, there is therapy. We have Celebrate Recovery for people that are, like, trying to overcome, you know, uh, dancing addiction because they just can't, you know, have it enough. And uh, so I walk in, and there's his dad, and he's, like, you know, on his phone, and he's kind of doing his thing. I walk in. I'm like, hey, what's up? And he's, you know, the universal sign. What's up? You know, and then he, like, goes right back to his phone. So I walk right up to the door where they're dancing, and Shiloh's within my view. And I see her dancing, and like, she's like smiling more and more. And the dance all gets done, and I walk into where they're dancing. I meet the instructor. Her name's Miss Lisa. I go, hey, Miss Lisa, you know, 
How's that first position going? I don't even know what they, all these things are, but there's like all these different dance things. I'm trying to be educated uh, with all that. And we do that. We come back outside, and she sits on a bench. Shiloh does. I'm taking all of her uh, shoes and stuff off to get ready to leave. And another little girl comes up, and her dad's not there. Now, she's not a teenager, but she looked at her, and she basically was like, here's my dad. And my dad is a ballet dad. I, where's your dad at? You know what I mean? And so we're trying to help her to be a little bit more nice, you know, around uh, the other kids. But she's getting the concept of what that means because it was so important for her to know that her dad was there. And so that night, this is what we did. One, two, three. One, two, three. Turn, turn. One, two, three. And that's what we did the whole night together uh, to do the dance. Why did that situation change? I didn't have an excuse. I could show all the data of where I've been, what I've been doing, but this is what I chose to do. I'm very sorry, and I want to change. So, you admit specifics, don't make excuses. Next thing, accept the consequences. When you sin against someone else, when you hurt them, when you betray them, when you let them down, there are going to be consequences to that. If you gossiped or lied about your best friend, don't expect that all of a sudden everything's going to be great. There are going to be consequences to that. There are going to be this time where it may not feel real comfortable. If you're a 17-year-old and you take mom and dad's car and you go out and you come back home and you're drunk when you walk in, they might uh, uh, still not beat you to death and you could apologize and they might forgive you, but they might take the car away for three months. And if they do... Don't be a whiner about it. You should be grateful that they didn't do it for six months. That's the consequence. You go out of town and you have an affair on your spouse. You come back and you confess. And your spouse is devastated. And your spouse loves God and they love you and they apologize or you apologize to them and they accept it. And they forgive you, but then they ask you, from now on, the only thing I want you to do is not to go out of town on these business trips anymore. And you go, but, but I have to. It's my job. Guess what? Change jobs. Change jobs. There's a lot of jobs out there. There's only one spouse that you can make it to the end. That's the consequence. Part of the apology is the fact that there may be consequences to what you do. Number four, change your behavior. You did something wrong, just change. Don't yell and then apologize. I'm sorry that I yelled at you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then an hour later, you didn't change. You changed for an hour, but you didn't change. You didn't change at all. Change your behavior. Get help. Get counseling. Uh, if you need to get into Celebrate Recovery, it's a great way. It was one of the things that helped me most of all with anger management in my life was going through those step studies. And you can do that. Join a small group. Get some people around you that are going to pray for you, that will hold you accountable, and ask that you can ask them, hey, how can I change? How can I do this? Last thing, ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. 
This is where transformation comes the most for people. Don't just say, I'm sorry, but add to it the most powerful words. Because I'm sorry, it's a game. It's a board game. My, my kids play sorry. The problem with sorry is that it's a sorry word. But the most powerful word, the word that impacts lives more than anything else, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is this whole perspective. I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? I'm wrong. I was wrong about this, but will you forgive me? I want to uh, share with you a story that's uh, a difficult story for me. It's probably um, one of the worst relationship issues uh, that I've ever uh, had, that it was one of the lowest moments, honestly, of my life. One of my best friends is a guy by the name of uh, John Goble. And John was my college roommate, and I had permission to share this. And we've been friends for over 25 years. And uh, he and I have gone through a lot of stuff together, and whatever we've gone through, every single time that we went through something, I knew he was there for me and that I'd be there for him. And you know, I remember a pastor one time telling me that if you got to the end of your life and you had five true friends, enough friends on one hand, you would be a very rich person. And he's one of three friends that are, I know, if I called at any time, they would be there. I've got three that I know no matter what, they'd be there for me. He was the best man in my wedding, and I was the best man in his wedding. There, there we are, a couple studs uh, back in the 90s. And uh, we encourage one another. And we've encouraged one another to be the best husband, to be the best dad, to be the best man of God that we can be. And uh, we've gone through everything together. And when we started this church, when we started the jar, and I was like, hey, I'm going I'm to plant this church. I was like, I, I want John to be on that very first team. And this is what this guy did. He sold his house in Indianapolis. He took a lower-paying job. He commuted back and forth to Indy. It was the same job, but just took less money. He moved his wife and his two daughters here. And he gave up everything to come and to start this church. He's the most loyal person outside of my family that I know. And this commute, eight years going back and forth from Indy to Muncie so that he could help with the church. He took care of all the finances in the church for the first eight years. That's why we're so healthy. In fact, the reason you're sitting on a chair right now is because someone invested money very wisely in the early years of the church so that you would have a place to sit. He helped with small groups. He ran all of our small groups. He helped with children's ministry. He, um, he gave literally uh, over $100,000 over his time to this place so that people who are far from God could come close. Now, uh, John and I, we are polar opposites. He's an uh, intense introvert. I'm over-the-top sometimes extrovert. He's all about the details. I'm all about the big picture. His favorite baseball team is the Reds. 
My favorite baseball team is God's team, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And throughout the years of the jar, I was so excited to have him there. But one of the things that I didn't realize was that the time that he was here, I was the biggest control freak that the church had. I wanted my hands in everything, and if people didn't quite make it to the point that I thought they should, I would jump in and I would take over. And there were many times that I would just go to John, I'd go, John, this is not happening the way that it should. I need you to go and make this thing right. And he would go and he would do that. And then we'd be in leadership meetings, and, and he would be my whipping boy. I remember times... Uh, degrading him for not lifting up small groups to the place that I thought it should be. And other leaders would see this, but no one ever said anything to me. And then about six years ago, he came to my house and he said, Chris, I'm leaving the church. He said, I can't do it anymore. And he took his family, and they moved back to Indianapolis. And immediately when this happened, though, I was so messed up that I thought to myself, well, he just isn't strong enough. He doesn't understand the vision as much as I do. He's not willing to commit and sacrifice to the level that I'm willing to do so. What is this problem? What is his deal? And for several months, we didn't talk. And then one day, I remember I was praying to God. I was crying out to God. Attendance was declining. People had left the church. John had left. And I was just crying out to him going, God, this is not fair. And most of the time, when I'm having my moments with God, I'll read scripture and there'll be scripture that gives me encouragement that you're, I'm for you, I'm with you. Or there are other people, they're for you, they're with you. But this time, God didn't do that. He corrected me. And I remember writing this down. And this is what he said, as much as I could tell in my spirit. Not audibly, but in my spirit. Chris, you've been selfish. You've not been a good friend. You've not been the kind of friend that I've called you to be. John left everything he had to come and to start this church. And you've never recognized him. You played him like a pawn in a chess game, using him for whatever you could do. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to make this right. Well, within a week, I picked up the phone. I called him. We met at O'Charlie's in Noblesville. We sat across the table from each other. And I said, John, I'm so sorry. God's revealed some things to me, and I understand why you've left. I try to control things. I put you down in front of other people. I didn't allow you to go after the vision that God had for your life. And I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And then John paused, and then he shared the hurt that he had experienced over the entire eight years of the church. The six years that we started in the two years when we were meeting in homes. 
And after he was all done, I just sat there and I listened to all of it because I deserved it. I deserved the consequences. I said, will you forgive me? And then he looked at me and he said, Bunch, you're my brother. I forgive you. And this is what's been cool about this. We have never brought that up again to each other's face. And one of the coolest things that happened to me, he took me to uh, the Indianapolis 500 time trials last year. And there was this banker who thought he was all big stuff. And he had paid for everything, and he comes up to John, and John's uh, in the finance world, and this was his banker. And the banker's like, who are you? And I was like, well, I'm his friend. We, we started a church. He's like, oh, John, you go to church? I was like, no, 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 no. I was like, if it wasn't for this guy, there are 350 men and women and kids that would have never been touched. And this big banker guy, he didn't get it. He's like, ah, okay. And I'll never forget when the time trials were done, we went out to uh, get our car. We'd driven separately. And John looked at me and he said, you honored me so much today. And it's for that that I'm so glad we went through that church and starting it together as friends. You see, this is the thing, folks. Our friendship is better today than it ever was on the other side. And I was thinking about it today or this week, that when you break a bone and that bone heals back, where is the strongest part of that bone? It's where it's broken. And I have a feeling that some of you today if you were honest to the deepest part of your life, that you have some relationships, that there's a break, and Jesus is longing for you to go first and make that thing right. And so that's been my prayer for you today, throughout this week, that you wouldn't let another week go by where you come into church and you give worship to God and you think all about God, but you haven't made it right in a relationship in your life. And I pray this week that you'll do that. If you would, I invite you to stand for closing prayer. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. And uh, we want to give you a moment with God as we turn off the lights. For you to maybe think about who is that person that you've hurt, that you've offended. It might be a small thing, it might be a big thing, but that you could make it right. Because some of you, you have a relationship right now, you know it's not what it's supposed to be. But you could do the right thing, you could go to them. They might be at fault in some of it, but you could be the first person to go to them. So let's pray.
God, some of us are here today and we have broken relationships. We've hurt someone, we've lied about someone, we've disappointed someone, we've betrayed someone. And God, we need your help to reconcile with them. So would you give us the courage to take the drive, to pick up the phone call, to pick up the phone, to meet with them one-on-one, to ask for forgiveness. And God, help there to be healing in this place today. That whatever that break is, that you would help people to have the courage to make it right. And that it would be stronger, that relationship, than it ever has been before. Maybe some of you are here today and the broken relationship that you honestly have is with God. You drifted away from Him for a period of your life. And now you've kind of come back and God's ready to make it right. But you need to be the one to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I walked away from this. And will you forgive me? And for some of you today, if you were honest, you'd be like, I don't even have a relationship with God. I don't even know where that thing is at. So I, it isn't that hard. You can just simply say, God, I'm sorry for my sins. I want to believe you and that you can be made right. You can have a new life, a fresh start today. And so if you're at that point where you're ready to make that kind of first-time commitment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And I'd like all of us to pray this prayer out loud together. I'll, I'll share a word and you can just repeat after me. But it's a, a prayer for, for all of us. But for some of you, it's going to be the very first time where you can say, God, I'm sorry, I want you in my life. So let's pray together. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I am sorry I sinned against you. Forgive me for my sins. Make me new. I believe you died for me and rose again so I could live for you. Fill me with your spirit so I could follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for new life. I give you mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, for those who said this the first time, let's give them a hand and uh, welcome them into God's family. And if you did say that prayer for a first time, we have a Bible and a reading plan, a gift to give to you. Come on up and get that. We'd love to give that to you. You don't have to say anything, uh, but there are a couple of Bibles there. Otherwise, have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Thanks, guys.